Welcome to the Forecast Roundtable, a podcast on aerospace and defense issues. Joining me today are Dan Darling, Derek Bisacchio, and myself, Richard Pettibone. Today we'll be talking about the Russian drawdown. As most people know, the Russians formally began airstrikes in Syria on September 30th of last year. And what prompted that Russian intervention, and what effect does this have on the balance of power of Syria and in the region going forward, gents? Thank you. Uh, mainly, the intervention began because the Syrian army, up until the point of the Russian intervention, was in very bad shape. They'd lost a lot of ground. Uh, Syrian President Assad went right to uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, and asked him for an intervention, and Putin... Uh, acquiesced to that. Uh, it also was uh, Putin saw a vacuum in Syria and in the United States' presence in Syria, and he saw an opportunity. Uh, they've seriously changed the uh, nature of the battlefield. If you look at uh, how the Syrian army is doing now versus how they were doing a year ago, they're far more confident. Uh, they've retaken a lot of last, lost ground. They've taken a lot of strategic uh, territory. Uh, they've broken a number of sieges. And so they're a lot more confident than they were in the past. It's also sent a very important message to NATO uh, that Russia is still an actor in the Middle East and they're willing to act uh, if need be. Now, on that confidence that you mentioned, how serious then is Russia going to be in drawing down its forces in the Middle East, or is that just a political ploy of the sorts? A political ploy is a good way to word it. Um, they've definitely, they've removed some aircraft. They were very big in, uh, in releasing footage of that. They removed Su-25s, they removed some Su-34s, but at the same time, they've also built up other aircraft. They've added uh, new helicopters that weren't there before, Mi-28s, Ka-52s, uh, and both of those have been uh, filmed uh, flying over Hummus province recently conducting uh, aerial missions. So while Russia has drawn down some of their forces, they've also added more. And what is this drawdown, even if it's just something on paper or just for the TV screen, is it really going to affect the balance of power in the region now that Russia's pulled out? Uh, it's not going to reduce any of the tensions in the region. One of the things that Russia was very clear about is that their air defense infrastructure that's been uh, deployed to Lazakia province at an air base, that's staying put. That means the S-400 staying put. Uh, that means all of the other uh, infrastructure that they have around there. They have a number of other uh, anti-aircraft systems that are uh, in place alongside the S-400. Those are all going to be there. They'll still have their naval presence in the Mediterranean there. And so what it means is uh, NATO still has to deal with a uh, very confident Russia uh, that's going to be in Syria for a long time. That deployment's not going to be uh, cut down for a while. So with Russia in the Middle East resurgent, even though they are drawing down somewhat in Syria, there's still the problem in the Ukraine and Europe and how these activities there are affecting defense spending across the continent. And for that, we have Dan Darling here to talk about that. And I guess one of the biggest questions is, how are Russia's actions in the Ukraine forcing a rethink of European defense policy? Well, in the Eastern European countries, there's definitely a refocus on defense, particularly in budgetary matters, capabilities, and policy, security policy aimed at Russia. But along the, the more traditional European countries, it's status quo. There are concerns are more what's going on with the migrant situation, what's going on with domestic terrorism and sovereign debt concerns. So it's not quite the same sense of urgency in the more traditional military powers of Europe, Spain, Italy, France, Britain, Germany, than it is in the Baltic countries where Russia is an immediate strategic threat to their sovereignty. 
Right. Now, does NATO uh, come into this, seeing this as a, as a growing threat? Now, are they going to be an effective security balancers in terms of keeping Russia in check, as you just said, with the Balkans not really being able to hold up their end of it at this moment in time? Is it going to be more substantial, or is it just going to be continue to be symbolic? Well, it's symbolic in that Article 5 is the security blanket for the Baltic states, for Poland, for the other former Warsaw Pact countries such as Czech Republic, Hungary, Slovakia. For them, NATO is the security pillar whose security guarantee under Article 5 of the Washington Treaty essentially holds up their sovereignty against any possible inroads attack by Russia. The, the concern is always with what has gone on in Ukraine is the hybrid warfare style that Putin has enacted, which adds different elements into the equation, such as compa Russia compatriots policy, which is support for all ethnic Russian populations, regardless of border. Meaning if there's a Russian ethnic population in Latvia, for instance, if the Russian government feels that that population is under threat, they may act. And the problem, sorry, Rich, uh, but the problem there is for countries on Russia's border like Latvia and Estonia, which used to be under the Soviet umbrella, is that they have large ethnic Russian populations, up to 30% in Latvia. So there's in the minds of the Latvian government, a fifth column in their midst. Understood. Uh, sticking with NATO there, we have Finland and Sweden, which remain outside of the, the treaty organization. But now that you have a Russia that is a bit resurgent in the region, is there any momentum toward those two countries joining the alliance? Those two countries remain apart from NATO. They Politically, it's untenable for those governments to join NATO because the populations are very much opposed to it. And I would say by recent public opinion polls had it at about anywhere from 55 to 60 percent in both Finland and Sweden. Although there is an uptick of support for NATO membership in both, which normally follows the pattern of any Russian behavior that comes across as threatening to those countries, um, there is an increase in support, but it is not enough for those governments to act. Instead, what they plan to do is do bilateral relationship, uh, Finland-Sweden defense, um, increase cooperation with, with Nordefco, the Nordic defense cooperation, and they have deepened relation with NATO while not joining NATO, and that will continue to be their approach towards the alliance. So overall, what do you see as the current state of relations between NATO and Moscow, especially as it relates to Eastern Europe? Very tense, to say the least. Um, the Obama administration um, initiated the European Reassurance Initiative in June 2014, shortly after the, the um, Crimean Peninsula takeover and other destabilization activities in Ukraine. And that is funding that comes out of the U.S. defense budget, and it comes out of the overseas contingency operations allocation. And it's the Pentagon request for fiscal year 2017 is $3.4 which is more than triple what was allocated last year. So there is a sense that NATO, which 
generally in the, from the Baltic perspective means the United States is more vested in protecting that flank of Europe. But with the earmarks coming from the overseas contingency operations portion of the defense budget, there's also worry that that can be altered, you know, with changes in uh, political leadership or um, sentiment in the U.S. towards that funding. All right, so we have a Russia that's pretty much resurgent with activity in Ukraine and Syria. And I guess one of the other questions to ask is, is Russian industry benefiting from the usage now of its wartime materiel in these conflicts? Are we going to see an increase in exports? Is it going to help the industry that has long been struggling ever since the end of the Cold War? Uh, what you've definitely seen is that Russian media in particular has, has talked about there being almost like an export bonanza. Uh, and you'd think that they you know, are landing all these orders. What's really happened, though, is that the, you know, the contracts that they're getting uh, are mostly things that they've been working on for a very long time. Uh, you know, they might be getting, you know, they're completing fighter deals and things like that, but they've been discussing these uh, fighter deals for a very long time with all these countries, like Algeria, for example. Uh, they're selling SU-34s, but they've been, you know, uh, negotiating with Algeria for the SU-34 for the better part of a decade. Uh, so while Russian industry has probably gotten more interest, uh, that hasn't exactly translated into more deals yet. That's not to say that it won't, um, but that at least it, as far as exports are concerned, that it hasn't really translated into what, um, you know, what Russia might be expecting as a byproduct. Uh, as far as their uh, domestic industry is concerned, one of the things that the head of Rostec recently told uh, the Wall Street Journal is that what Russian uh, defense corporations are kind of using Syria as is somewhat of a testing ground to see what works amongst all of their equipment. Um, you know, where, where they've had uh, failures, what needs to be adjusted. And so they've really taken a lot of the lessons they've learned from Syria and they've, and they've worked with that. Um, and as far as Russia's, uh, you know, domestic procurements are concerned, they're about to unveil a state armaments program for 2018 to 2025. And a lot of that they've, they've talked about is going to incorporate, you know, some of the lessons from Syria uh, they're looking at reconnaissance, they're looking at precision weapons, uh, and particularly electronic warfare. Um, they were discussing that they're, they've worked on uh, their military internet and also uh, ground communication systems. So they've certainly you know, learned a lot of lessons from Syria, um, and it's going to definitely help their military itself, but it's not really translating to the type of foreign sales that, you know, that, that they are saying it is. I have nothing to add to that except I was going to say one issue that um, we haven't touched on is there essentially no new markets have opened up from, for Russia, defense exports from this conflict, from any of these conflicts. If anything, they've shut themselves off uh, from a lot of the rest of the Western world. So there's no longer defense cooperation with France, Italy, inroads that they were making prior to uh, 2008 with the Georgia, five-day Georgia war, and the recent deployment in Syria and U the Ukrainian destabilization activities. So for Russia, it's old markets. It is not new markets, and even old markets are being um, slowly intruded upon by China. Okay, thank you very much, gentlemen.
Thank you for joining us today, and check back for upcoming podcasts on a variety of aerospace and defense issues. For more information and detailed analysis on this and any subject on the aerospace and defense industries, please visit us at forecastinternational.com.